Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the last week of Lent. If you can believe it, next Sunday is Easter. So that means we're in our final session of the bad boys of the Bible. And if you're familiar with the church calendar, then you know that this Sunday, the Sunday right before Easter, is Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday of what we call the triumphal entry. So we're going to sort of kill two birds with one stone. We are going to do our final bad boys section, our final topic, reading the the normal reading from Palm Sunday, reading the triumphal entry of Jesus. Because our final bad boys of the Bible, it's not just boys, it's everybody, it's men, it's women, it's children, it's the crowds. It's the crowds who hail Jesus as the Messiah, the King, when he rides in today on Sunday. And just five days from now, on Friday morning, they will yell, crucify him, kill him, away with him. So we're going to look today at the crowd. So turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 20. The triumphal entry, again, as you can imagine, like the trial with Pilate last week, all the gospel writers talk about it. We're going to look at Matthew's version today. So Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to start reading in verse 29, and we're going to read through verse 17 of chapter 21. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is the last week. He will be killed then right before, uh, he'll be killed on Friday of the week coming up. And so he's leaving the city of Jericho and he's headed up. It's a one day journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's on the final leg of his journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. So read along with me, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem, And came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. 
Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So, as I said, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is the final week in his life before his crucifixion. And theoretically, everyone in Israel is headed to Jerusalem. Everyone is supposed to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, of course, not everyone did, but thousands and thousands of people did. We know from some of the other gospel writers, there are thousands of people on this road with Jesus as he climbs this last leg. Jerusalem is quite high. And so he's climbing up towards Jerusalem. And as he goes up, two blind men start calling to him, and they call him Son of David. Now that is what we call a theologically significant term, because Son of David, in in their world, it means something very specific. It, It means that you're the Messiah. You're the guy that Israel has been waiting for. You're the guy that the whole, all the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, talk about. Moses talks about him in 1500 BC. David talks about him in 1000 BC. The prophets talk about him all the way down to Malachi, the last prophet in the 400s BC. They all mention this guy who is coming and you find out more and more about him over time. And what they know at this point is that the Messiah, he's called the son of David because he is literally a descendant of David. He is literally a son of David, and he is figuratively going to be like David. He's going to save his people. He's going to be the king of Israel. He is going to make them safe, just like David did when David became king and he conquered everyone around them so that there was a generation of people who were safe. That's what the Messiah is going to do. These guys call Jesus son of David. Now, Jesus has never called himself that. And there's really only one other time in the book of Matthew that he is directly called that by someone in Israel. There's people who at times ask the question, could this be the the son of David? But there's one other time that he is called the son of David. And I want to read that story to you because it's really interesting. It's all the way back in Matthew 9. You're welcome to turn there. You can just follow along with me. In Matthew 9, verses 27 to 31. This is probably a couple years before the story we're reading. Listen to what happens. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Do you notice the similarities? These two times, again, the only two times up until now in the Gospel of Matthew, where someone in Israel calls Jesus the son of David. Both times, it's two blind men who say it. But the stories are very different, except for that one fact. This couple years ago story, these two blind men call out, son of David, have mercy on us. And do you notice what Jesus does? He doesn't stop. He doesn't address them. He goes inside. So he had been outside with people around him. Now he goes inside and we're told they come to him. We don't know if he calls them or they just follow him in or or what's going on. But privately inside, he speaks them. And remember what he says, do you believe I can do this? And they say, oh, yes, absolutely. And he says, okay, then according to your faith, it will be done. 
And Jesus says that to people all the time. Do you notice how he's kind of like diverting the healing away from himself? He doesn't say, yes, I will heal you. He says, according to your faith. All the time, Jesus will tell people, your faith has healed you. When, of course, it was Jesus who healed them. I mean, they believed in Jesus earlier. That's why they came to him. He touches them. He does something. He says something, and they're healed. But he'll always divert it away a little bit from himself. He'll say something like, your faith has healed you. Right before this story in Matthew 9, Jesus brings a girl back from the dead, She's died. She's died hours ago. The mourners have come. Her dad has gone and gotten Jesus. But when Jesus comes to the house, he'll tell everyone, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And then he'll go inside by himself. He won't even take all his disciples. Just Peter, James, and John, and the mother and father of the kid. Just those five people go in the house, into the room, and he says to the dead girl, get up. And she gets up. And then he tells everyone the same thing he told these guys, don't tell anyone. Now imagine you were one of the mourners. Imagine you'd heard that this guy's daughter died and you've come over to console him and this guy says, oh, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Yeah, right, she's been dead, she's been dead. Trust us, she's dead. But then she comes out. Now what are you thinking? Are you thinking, wow, he raised her from the dead? Or are you thinking, oh my gosh, was he right? Was she just sleeping? Did, 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 did we miss it? Jesus is constantly diverting away from his own power. Instead of healing the girl openly in front of everyone and acknowledging it, he passes it off. Oh, she's not dead. She's just asleep. It's just a few people who see it. He tells them not to tell him. He'll do this with the demons all the time. Every time he heals someone, the demons know who he is. They're saying to him, we know who you are, Jesus, son of God. He silences them. They can't talk. Even his own disciples, when he says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of David. Jesus says to them, you're right. Don't tell anyone. A a a theologian over 100 years ago coined the phrase, the messianic secret. Because we know Jesus is the Messiah. We know it from the very first line in Matthew. We know it from the first line in Mark. You know it as soon as you start reading the gospels. He's the Messiah. But it's like Jesus is hiding it all through his ministry. And remember, his ministry is like two and a half to three and a half years long. All through his ministry, he's diverting people away. He's taking folks off to the side to heal them. He's going inside away from prying eyes. He's telling people, don't tell anyone the messianic secret. We, the readers of the gospel, know he's the Messiah, but the people, they're always wondering, is he the Messiah or not? At one point, like there'll, there'll be debates. You'll read about these debates going on where one group of people will say, this guy, he must be the Messiah. Look at what he does. He, he heals the blind and the lame. I even heard a rumor he raised a girl from the dead. And another group of people will say, but the Bible says that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. He's the son of David. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. They'll argue about it. Notice what happens in this story. Two blind guys, just like a couple years ago, two blind guys cry out to him, Jesus, son of David. And he doesn't go inside and he doesn't stand off. He turns to them and says, yes, what can I do for you? They have publicly said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the son of David. And every other time anyone has ever said anything like that to Jesus, 
He's passed it off. He's gone inside. He's pushed it off somehow. And this time he just turns to them and says, yes, what can I do for you? He openly is acknowledging when they call him the son of David, he's acknowledging it. And then it's none of this, your faith has healed you. Like, what do you want? We want to see. Done. And then he just starts walking again. He's not healing anybody in secret. The messianic secret at this point in Matthew 20, it's done. Jesus is not keeping it a secret any longer. And if I was in the crowd at this point, I think I'd be freaking out because they have been waiting for the Messiah for generations. I mean, again, Moses talked about it 1,500 years before them in 1500 BC. But since the Babylonians invaded in 600 BC, there has only been like one generation where Israel ruled itself. They have always either been an occupied territory or a conquered territory or a vassal kingdom. They have never ruled themselves except for this one brief little moment. They have been waiting, longing, yearning for 600 years for this guy, the Messiah, the son of David, the guy who's going to liberate him. And they've been arguing over the last few years, is this Jesus? And now suddenly it's out in the open. Yes, son of David. And Jesus says, yes, what can I do for you? And if you had any doubt, look at what happens next. He sends his disciples there. They're going up to Jerusalem. He sends his disciples, this little village, off out of the way. And he says, there's a donkey and her colt tied up there. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, in our world, we call that stealing. When you take something that it doesn't belong to you. And in their world, they call that stealing when you take something that doesn't belong to you. So he tells his followers, hey, if anybody says anything to you, you just tell them the Lord needs the donkey. He'll send it back when he's done. And Matthew doesn't tell us, but the other gospel writers do. That's exactly what happened. They go, they started tying the donkey. People are like, uh, excuse me, that's not your donkey. What are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And the people are like, oh. Jesus is exerting ownership over a donkey in a village that he's not even going to go through with people he doesn't even know. The Lord, the Lord needs it. Then he gets on the donkey and he starts riding. And Matthew tells us it's to fulfill a prophecy. And what, what is the prophecy? Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes. Your king, the son of David, the Messiah the guy who's going to be David again. He's going to free the people. They're going to live in safety. This is him. And the crowd goes absolutely nuts. Like, they know what's going on. They know what son of David means, that he openly acknowledges, that he openly heals people. He sits on the donkey and rides into Jerusalem, just like the prophecy says. They go absolutely nuts. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground for the donkey to walk on. They're cutting. There are these huge palm trees, we're told, that on the side of the road. They're cutting down the palm branches, and they're waving them. I want you to listen to something. This is from Isaiah 55. This is... 700 years before this time, Isaiah prophesied that Israel was going to go into exile in Babylon, but that God would restore her. This is God speaking about what was going to happen on the day when he restored Israel. So God says to Israel, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field 
will clap their hands. Now imagine you're in that crowd and you're looking down that road and Jesus is riding on the donkey. Your king comes into the capital city and all along the road, there's people holding these, these branches are like six to 10 feet high. All on the road, people are waving their branches and all you see is the trees waving and the trees clapping as the branches come together. Isaiah 55 is happening right in front of your eyes. Listen to this from Psalm 118. It's a Psalm of David. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Did you hear that? What they're shouting, Hosanna. That word in Psalm 18, Lord, save us. That word save us is Hosanna. They're shouting Psalm 18, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are proclaiming Psalm 18 and they're living it with bows in hand. That's greenery. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, the altars in the temple. Where does Jesus go when he gets in the city? He goes to the temple and all these people with bows, with greenery, with palm leaves, they're all following him. Like it's happening What Psalm 18, what David predicted a thousand years ago, it's happening right here in front of our eyes. Jesus goes in the temple and he claims ownership over it. My house will be a house of prayer. And he kicks people out and he kicks them out violently. He overturns their tables. He overturns their benches. He throws them out. The word kicked out, it's the same word for casting out a demon. He throws them out of the temple. And then he gathers the people and he teaches them and he heals them. And there's kids running around shouting, Hosanna to the the son of David. It's happening. This thing that we have been waiting for, for hundreds of years, it's here. The new king of Israel is here. And the, 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 the leaders the teachers of the law, the, 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 the council, they see this and they're freaking out too, but for a totally different reason. They're indignant, it says. They're just like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And they come to Jesus and like, Jesus, do you hear this? Like, this is so unseemly. You gotta calm everybody down. Is that what Jesus does? Does he turn to his followers and say, okay, okay, we're getting a little crazy here. Come on, everybody, let's just, let's just get it together. Like, no, he turns right to him and says, Haven't you ever read the scriptures? This is exactly what God said would happen. What these people have been waiting for, for hundreds of years, is happening right in front of their eyes. The Messiah, the King, the Son of David has come into the capital. What is he going to do next? Is he going to wave his arms and every Roman's just going to drop dead? The Romans have been oppressing the people of Israel for over a hundred years. Boom, is he just gonna get rid of them? Is he gonna march to the palace and kick out Herod, the king of the Jews? Although most people would say Herod's no more Jewish than their donkey. The Romans installed him. People hate him. Is he gonna march to the palace, kick out the king, and he's gonna sit on the throne? Now, finally, a descendant of David back on the throne. Is he gonna go to the council, to the Sanhedrin, and just abolish it? He's done. We don't need them anymore. We've got the son of David. What? What is he going to do next? He's here to liberate us. What's he going to do? What does he do? Verse 17, Jesus left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Nothing happens. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't get rid of the Romans. 
Doesn't get rid of the Sanhedrin. Doesn't march to the palace, kick out Herod, sit on his throne. He leaves. He leaves and goes to bed. And if you just keep reading the rest of this story before you get to the crucifixion, it sounds like all the rest of Matthew. This is Jesus' third time in Jerusalem. I mean, that's why you say he had a three-year ministry, because there's these three Passovers that we see Jesus come up to Jerusalem. This one doesn't sound any different from the others. He teaches. He tells a bunch of parables. He gets into arguments with the Pharisees. He takes his disciples aside and keeps talking about how he's going to die. He's the Messiah. Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah rules. You know, finally, in chapter 24, his disciples, I think they just can't stand it anymore. And they come to him and they're like, when? When? When's it going to happen? When are you going to rule? When is this age going to end? This age when Israel is oppressed and the next age is going to start. When we're on top again. When, Jesus? What are the signs? How are we going to know? Like, I think they just can't stand it. Do you remember what Jesus says to them? It's in chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus, when? And Jesus says, I don't know. You don't know. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. That's not been given to me to know. How can you not know? You're the Messiah. You're the guy. He never does anything that they're expecting. Is it any wonder that five days after they were cheering him to high heaven, the son of David is here, our liberator. He's going to free us. Five days later, he comes in on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday morning, they're not cheering son of David. They're cheering kill him crucify him, away with him, be done, be gone, away from the earth, kill him. We want Barabbas. Barabbas took took part of an insurrection. Barabbas killed Roman soldiers. Barabbas is a man of action. Barabbas is trying to get something done. Give us Barabbas. Don't give us this guy. And brothers and sisters, is that any different from us? Aren't we convinced that we know what is best for us. Just like the crowd, they knew what was right. They knew what they needed. Aren't we exactly the same? Don't we know what we need? Oh, I have to have this relationship. I have to have this job. I have to have this person. I have to have this money. I have to have this status. I have to have these circumstances. This has to change. That has to change. I have to get this. I have to get rid of that. Aren't we exactly like them? We know what needs to happen. And when God is doing what we want and Jesus is doing the things we expect, then Hosanna, hallelujah, praise God. And when he's not, we're angry. Away with him. What good is he? What what good are you, God, if you don't do what I know I need? If we ask the crowd what was wrong with the world, they would say, them. The Romans are what's wrong. The King Herod is what's wrong. The Sanhedrin is what's wrong. It's them. If we ask the crowd, what do you need? They would say, we need to be freed. We need to be freed from them. We need to be freed from oppression. All those things. Israel's on the bottom. We need Israel to be on the top. Imagine if Jesus had done that. Imagine if he had been the Messiah that they wanted. He had come in, he had kicked out the Romans. He had come in, he had tossed Herod 
out of the palace. He had sat down. He'd abolished the Sanhedrin. He'd have ruled, and he'd have ruled well. Imagine if he'd have snapped his fingers, and Rome wasn't the center of the universe anymore. Jerusalem was. And it wasn't the Roman Empire that ruled the known world. It was the Hebrew Empire. Imagine if he had been the Messiah that they wanted. Then every single member of that crowd would have lived in the Hebrew Empire, and then they would have died, and they would have gone to hell, separated from their God. What they need is not liberation from the Romans. They need liberation from death. They're all still going to die. Whether they die on the bottom or they die on the top, they're still going to die. Jesus comes to liberate them. Not from them, not from those outside circumstances, not from the oppression and the injustice around them, but from themselves, from what's in here, from the sin that leads to death. That's in them, that's in me, that's in you. That's what Jesus comes for. They don't need freedom from the Romans. They need freedom from the evil one. They don't need freedom from Herod who might kill them. They need freedom from the devil who wants to destroy their souls for all eternity. But they don't know that. And they're not asking for that. And when that's what Jesus gives them, they are furious because it's not what they wanted. Aren't we just like them? Aren't we convinced that we know what is best for our lives? And what the scriptures tell us over and over again is that we don't. We don't know what's best. God knows what's best, and he always gives it to us. They clamor for a Messiah to save them from the oppression in their lives. And Jesus doesn't do that. He offers them salvation from death itself. That's Easter. That's what we'll celebrate next week. That's where all of this in Lent, all these weeks, is where everything we keep saying, this is where everything is going. That Jesus has saved us from sin and from death, not from the oppression that's out there, but from the oppression that's in here. That's what we need. We don't know it. But that's what we need. Aren't we just like these people? We are convinced. We know what is best. And we are so angry. We are so discouraged. We are so frustrated when the Lord doesn't give it to us. Like them, one day we'll sing God's praises because it looks like he's giving us what we want. And then the next day he won't. And we'll curse him. And we'll be furious and we'll be in despair and depressed and discouraged. I know I am, and I suspect you are as well. The scriptures say God knows what we need and that God will always give that to us, always. He will always do what is right. He will always do what is needed. We are in the last week before Easter. So let me make another suggestion to you. You know, as we've looked at all these various bad boys and, and held them up as a mirror to see ourselves and then to be grateful for what Jesus has done, let me encourage you this week to do what Scripture tells us to do over and over again, to give thanks in everything. 
Not that everything is good. The world is evil. There's plenty of horrible things that happen. But to give thanks to God, because God works all things together for good. Because God brings good out of everything. This week, as we prepare ourselves for Easter, let me encourage you to take a good look at the crowd and say, I'm not going to be them. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust I'm going to praise God when it looks like he's doing exactly what I think I need, and I'm going to praise him when he's not, because I know he's good, and I know he's doing what I need. These people, they didn't need salvation from Rome. They needed salvation from death, and that's exactly what Jesus offers to them. As you go through this week, I'm willing to bet there will be times when you won't get what you are absolutely convinced you need. When that happens, remember the crowd and remember Easter. Jesus gives us what we need, even when we hate him for it. Even when we despise him, even when we yell away from him, crucify him, what good are you? He still gives us what we need because he loves us and because he's good. Now pray with me. Lord Jesus, I I confess, I I am so easily discouraged when things don't go as I expect. I confess, Lord, I am so easily angered when you don't do what I think should be done. I'm just like the crowd. I am just like the crowd. One day I praise you because I think you're doing what I want, and then when you don't, I curse you. Lord, I'm sorry. We, your people, we are sorry. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to praise you on Sunday and then curse you on Friday because you haven't done what we thought was best. You haven't given us what we think we need. Lord, forgive us, change us. Holy Spirit, be at work in us this week as we prepare ourselves for Easter. Let us see us as we truly are. Let us know the depths of our sin and our depravity. And so remember that you have saved us, that you Anyone in the crowd who would turn to you ever in their lives, you would save them. You would never say to them, no, no, you voted for my execution. You cried out for me to die. I'm not going to save you. Every single person, those Roman soldiers who nailed you to the cross, if they turn to you, you will gladly save them. You will save them with joy. Thank you. Lord, help us prepare well to celebrate what you have done to celebrate that you have saved us. You have given us exactly what we need. Thank you. Thank you that you don't listen to us when we cry out for things that are bad, that are wrong, that, that, that aren't really what we need. We cry out for things like them, crying out for deliverance from Rome, when all that would mean is that they would die free rather than dying slaves. Instead, you offered them life. Thank you. Help us, Lord. You know how fickle we are. You know how prone to forget we are. You know how hard it is for us to be steadfast. Help us this week to remember, to turn away from the crowd, to be thankful, to praise you, to praise you when you do what we expect and what we want, and to praise you when we don't, to thank you when you are exactly who we think you should be, and to thank you when you're not, because you are good and you always do what is right. Help us. Lord, help us prepare for Easter. We pray these things in your name. Amen.